We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. It's wonderful to see your faces this Sunday morning. My name is Matthew Barrett. I'm one of the pastors here. Isn't it a joy to gather each Sunday morning like this? I hope you feel that way. We are continuing our series on the doctrine of the Trinity, and I'm so eager to jump into it, I almost forgot we have some announcements. Uh, A couple of announcements. Uh, First of all, you may have received one of these handouts. Uh, Let me just encourage you, don't hesitate, volunteer, especially for our kids here at Emmaus. I know my kids have been blessed by so many of you. Uh, Please jump in there. We need you. Uh, Volunteer and serve our kids and teach them the gospel. The second announcement is we actually have a membership weekend coming up. If if you've been visiting Emmaus and you are interested about becoming a covenant member here, or perhaps you just want to learn more about the church and find out what do, what do we believe here? Uh, what does it mean to be a member at all? Uh, we have a membership weekend coming on Saturday, September 18th. Saturday, September 18th, not too, not too far from now. It'll be from 1230. It'll start at 1230, uh, just a little bit after noon. And then uh, we will also meet upstairs in the loft in the theater. If you would please sign up for that, you can find a link on the website, or you can also, I believe, find it on social media. Okay, with that said, we have been starting each, excuse me, each sermon with the Nicene Creed. I don't know about you, but I have so enjoyed saying this together as a church, and it bears repeating that as we do so, We are linking arms with brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe, and not only in the present, but from the past, those who have been faithful to confess the Holy Trinity from century to century. So let's say this together, the Nicene Creed. I'll say it with you, and if you would uh, look at the words on the screen. We believe in one God, the Father all-governing, creator of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, who for us men and because of our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures, and ascended to heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, 
and will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son, who spoke through the prophets and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. And as you do so, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, let me remind you of where we have been on this journey so far. What a journey it's been, been up to this point. Uh, we started off the series. Uh, Pastor Sam launched us into the Nicene Creed, explaining why, why this creed and, and why is it so important to confess the Trinity? Why is that so crucial to our identity, not just as individual Christians, but as a church? From there, uh, we, uh, Pastor Joseph then moved us into Revelation itself. How is the Trinity revealed to us? How do we avoid certain dangers like conflating who God is in and of himself, apart from the world, with how he has revealed himself in history. And then I preached, reminding us of God's unity or his simplicity, seeking to understand how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be one God, three persons, one essence. And last week, Pastor Ronnie came to you, and he preached on this incredible, mysterious, and yet instrumental doctrine of eternal generation. And he took his cue from the Nicene Creed, showing you what some of those phrases mean, and concluded by turning to the gospel itself. As we envisioned this series, and as you have been reciting that Nicene Creed, you may have noticed how much that language of eternal generation pervades that confessional statement. And so we are going to actually devote not one but two messages, Ronnie's from last week and then today's message, to that doctrine of eternal generation. And today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1 and then transition to try to understand well, what, is, what exactly does it mean for this son to be from the father. Before our family moved to Kansas City, you may or may not know this about my family, but we lived in London, in England. And London, if you've actually lived there for some time, you may know that London can be a very dark, dark place. The sun and all the happiness that it brings is blocked by those imposing gray clouds. If you've been there in July as a tourist, you may not realize this because you're there for that moment of sunshine. But most of the year, the city is actually covered in what I like to call the blanket of gloom, expunging incandescence wherever it can be found. One year, while we were living there, I was invited 
back to the States to speak at a conference in Houston, Texas. And I'll never forget it. I remember after, goodness, it must have been 12 or 14 hours on the plane, flying over the Atlantic, finally landing. I walked through the airport, walked outside, and was met by a giddy smile of a prosperous sun in all of its blue sky and its glistening sunshine just started coating my vitamin D deficient face. And I felt as if I had been redeemed. (laughs) Brought back to planet Earth after a dreary, dispirited exile. And with a smile spreading from ear to ear, I would have got on the ground and kissed the grass under my feet if it wasn't for that police officer standing there looking at me like, what's wrong with you? As if I was an alien from another planet. But on that happy day, I looked up and I thanked the sun for its radiance. Something you don't realize until it's gone. Did you know that light is one of the most important biblical concepts? It's actually one of the most prevalent concepts that Scripture uses to describe God himself. The author of Hebrews could have chosen any number of concepts to describe the Son of God, but he chose to open this letter with this concept of radiance, radiance. Except Hebrews uses light in a way that differs from other books of the Bible. You don't have to turn there, but just to give you an example, in the book of James, James also uses light in James chapter 1 to talk about God. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. But notice, James uses this imagery of light to differentiate between the unchanging, immutable creator and the changing, very mutable creation, which includes you and me. And he says, the father of lights, a phrase which beautifully describes this creator of the great lights of the sky. He says, this father of lights is unchanging in every way, without variation or shadow due to change, and therefore is the giver of all good gifts, every single one of them, in our ever-changing created order. You see, for all the biblical authors, there is a clear, indisputable distinction between the immutable creator and his changing or mutable creation, a distinction we dare not violate. Does the author of Hebrews, though, locate the Son of God himself with the Father of lights or with the changing creation. 
That is a question that is central to Christianity. And Hebrews, look there with me, specifically at verse 3. The Son shares in the same glory as God, because He is the very radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. And lest we think otherwise, as we are so often prone to do, the author then identifies the Son with the Creator Himself rather than the creation. Did you notice this in the verse 2 and the second half of verse 3? He names the Son as the one through whom God created the world. And then in verse 3, he says, he is the sustainer of the cosmos, upholding the world by the word of his power. Skip down to verse 10. The author will do the same towards the end of Hebrews 1 by going to the Old Testament, appealing to Psalm 102. A, pass, a passage that speaks of God as creator. But in Hebrews 1, the author concludes that what the psalmist says here should be said of none other than the Son himself. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Wow. The Son, then, is not to be identified with the creation, but with the Creator. The Father is not His Creator, like creation, in James chapter 1. Instead, the Father is the Son's eternal source, His everlasting principle. Which is why Hebrews 1.3, look back there with me, verse 3, it can describe the Son as the radiance of God's glory. As one theologian has said, as light naturally radiates His brightness, so too God naturally radiates His Son. Lights and its splendor, listen to this, lights and its splendor are one. The Son, this is so, so essential to what it means for you to be a Christian. The Son is the resplendent effulgence of God's glory. Do you realize that this morning? The Son is the resplendent, ever-lucent, beaming effulgence of God Himself and His everlasting immensity. A theologian by the name of John Webster said it this way. I don't know that I can say it better than this. The Son is the self-diffusive presence of the One who is Himself, unapproachable splendor. God's glory is God Himself and the perfect majesty and beauty of His being. The glory is resplendent because God Himself is light. He pours forth light. We're used to talking about God is holy, God is love. I rarely hear anyone say, God is light. 
He is light. And yet, what you just confessed on that screen makes it a priority. When Nicaea described the Son's eternal generation from the Father, how did it describe it? Light from light. It's not speculating in some strange foreign way. It's echoing the biblical witness itself to describe the Son's Remember this phrase? I told you to write it down, underline it, highlight it. The Son's eternal relation of origin. His filiation, to use a fancy theological word. The Son is light because He is the eternal offspring of light. Here, here is our doctrine of eternal generation once again, in Hebrews, but in an altogether beautiful and different way, this time wrapped in the imagery of light itself. But we're not done. Look back at your Bibles. Look at verse 3. He's not done. The author of Hebrews switches metaphors from light to what? Imprint. It's almost as if there's just not enough words Not enough imagery, not enough concepts, not enough metaphors to describe this mystery. So he turns to another. The Son, he says, is the exact, not similar, not like, the exact imprint of God's nature. Once again, confirming the co-equality of the Son with the Father. And yet, as an imprint, he's not the same person as the Father, Same nature, yes, but distinguished as the Son who is from the Father, much like an imprint from its originating template or source. This concept of imprint, we have to be really careful here because I know know the temptation that's in our head right now is to somehow read something human, something with limitation into this concept. But notice here, this concept of imprint, it does not undermine or distract from what we just learned about radiance. Instead, it complements it in every way. For if he is the exact imprint, or to use Paul's words in Philippians 2.6, if he is the one who is in the form of God, then he is begotten from the Father's nature. Nothing less than true God of true God, representing the divine essence itself. Radiance of the glory of God, imprint of God's nature, Both of these accentuate the Son's eternal origin from the Father's essence. Last week, you saw that John's Gospel loves to use this language of begetting. And just now, we've seen that Hebrews likes to use this imagery of light. If we were to survey the Scriptures... Friends, you would see the most beautiful mosaic 
full of one color after another. We don't have time, but I, I, I just can't help but mentioning these to you. Maybe write a few down. Study these on your own. John 1 labels the Son as the Word of God. John 5 describes this same Son as life from life. Colossians 1 names the Son as the image of the invisible God. 1 Corinthians 1, building on a passage like Proverbs 8, identifies the Son as the wisdom of God. Matthew 2, building on Micah 5, calls Jesus, and I find this one so incredible, the Ancient of Days. We could go on, but perhaps there's one we just overlook because we're just so used to reading our Bibles all the time. This doctrine of eternal generation, it's not just in a, it's not just, oh, we go find a verse for it. I know that sometimes the habit we're in. If we do that, we miss out on this mosaic. Because at the center of this mosaic is something so basic. We're prone to skip over it. Eternal generation is manifested in the revelation of the gospel itself. The Son is sent by the Father to become incarnate in history because this is the same Son generated by the Father from eternity. Eternal generation is not found in a mere verse. It's the warp and woof of Scripture's entire story. And you children in here, I think you may know this better than us adults. If you're a, a, a child or a youth, I want you to just look at me for a second. Just give me a second of your time. As you read stories, some of your favorite stories, our family has so many of our own. Tom Sawyer, for example. Or perhaps you love Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia. As you are thrown into the chaos of a complaining Edmund. Or that witch who just is tearing apart everything at the seams. It's always winter, isn't it? Never Christmas. Everything can seem hopeless and lost. And you, get, you just get so caught up in that story and the desperation it carries. But sometimes I have found that you boys and girls, you remind us, dad, mom, don't worry. Aslan. Aslan. He's on the move. Why do we say that? Why does Lewis say that? Because he understands that in the ever-changing story of Narnia, there's one who transcends it. One who is writing the very script. It's Aslan himself. And who he is matters for what happens next in this great story of redemption. But what does it mean what does it mean, actually, for the Son to be generated by the Father? 
We've been talking a lot about it. We've been looking to Scripture to affirm it. But what does it actually mean? Well, if I could put it in a sentence, I might say this. It means that from all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple, undivided, divine essence to the Son. Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we have some responsibility because in the last century, we have done a terrible job. A terrible job of preserving, confessing, and understanding this truth. All too often, we have either neglected it, we've rejected it, and... At times, we've tried very hard to read something human into it, project something of our own human experience into it, which lessens its beauty and mystery. When approaching this mystery, here is the key. We must, we must rid our minds of anything carnal. We must rid our minds of anything impure. Now, what might that include? Well, there are, I think, at least nine marks, nine marks, as I call them, of an unhealthy generation. Nine marks that should not characterize, not characterize what we are what we just described. Actually, these are not original to me. In fact, if you go back and read some of the greatest voices of that Nicene tradition down through the centuries, you will discover many of these. Now, you don't have to know all these. You don't even have to write all these down. But I want, I want to, to mention these, and then we're going to focus on one of them, just one of them. But I want to mention these just to give you an idea of how easy it is how easy it is to start slipping something of our own into this divine mystery. Eternal generation, so here we go. Eternal generation cannot involve a division of nature. That's number one. The Father doesn't break off a piece of divinity and give it to the Son. Number two. Eternal generation doesn't involve a multiplication of essence. The Father doesn't multiply the essence so that the Son has His own. Number three, eternal generation does not involve, and this one is key, any priority or posteriority. In other words, the Father is not superior to the Son, nor is the Son before or after the Father. Number four, five and six. Eternal generation involves no mutation, no motion, no alteration. Now why why all of those? Well, there's no change that takes place. Remember, this is the eternal God we are talking about. Father and Son, they don't somehow morph into something they were not before. Seven, eternal generation does not involve any corruption. Isn't this important? Divinity and all of its perfection is not compromised. 
Number eight, nothing is less as a result of eternal generation. There's no reduction in either the Father or the Son. And number nine, though I'm sure we could think of others, it never ceases. There's no ceasing of its operation. It is eternal. Now, we cannot touch on all of these. We would need, I suppose, nine more sermons. And I don't want to push your patience. But we should touch on one that tends to be especially dangerous. The son's generation involves no priority, no posteriority, and certainly no inferiority. But instead, it designates order in the Trinity and order alone. Now, what does this mean exactly? Well, I need you to be a student for a minute. We're going to use our minds and think hard about the deep things of God. Previously, I, me- I emphasized that the Son is begotten by the Father. But unlike our human experience, the Son's generation is eternal. It is timeless. And if eternal, then, gener- then this generation the Son is not a generation of a lesser being made in time or before time, whatever that would mean. Instead, this generation of the Son, well, this is a Son who is equal in deity to the Father. But the reason the Son is not inferior to the Father is because the one divine essence, you may remember this language, it wholly subsists. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Wholly subsists. In the Son, due to His generation from the Father's nature or substance. This is what it means when we confess together that He is true God of true God, or light from light. There can be no reduction of the begetter's substance when he begets the Son. The Father begets his Son, and the two are, to return to that key word that I mentioned before, consubstantial, the two are consubstantial, meaning they are identical in their divine essence. They are to be identified by the same divine essence. The Son doesn't have a different essence than the Father. There's no priority. There's no posteriority. These would undermine the Son as consubstantial, as one who is of the same substance as the Father. Now consider the biblical imagery of light once again. You may have noticed in that phrase from Nicaea, light from light, that this is a fitting way to describe this concept. Did you know, though, that one of the church fathers, there are many Gregories floating around at the time, I think it was a popular name for you mothers to call your son, not sure why, but there were many Gregories, and one of them, his name was Gregory of Nazianzus. Gotta love that name. He also appealed to this imagery of light. Especially when this group that Ronnie mentioned last week of Arians, or we might call them subordinationists, because they subordinated the sun. Well, 
he responded to them by appealing to this imagery of light. Because they would say, well, this son, he must, he must be less than the father. He must be an effect that's inferior to its cause. How did Gregory respond? Well, first thing he did, he was a good pastor. He started preaching sermons, like we are. And what did he say in those sermons? Well, he said, consider the sun. It is the cause of light. But by no means is light inferior to its source. In essence, they are one and the same. How much more so with divinity? Is not the divine essence inseparable, eternal, and unchanging? What's he after? The Father is the principle in the Godhead. The principle who alone is without principle, they like to say. Language we're not used to hearing today. He is unbegotten. But that does not mean that the Father and Son are anything but co-equals. To read some type of hierarchy of any kind into these origins is to abuse them, even manipulate them. The Father may be the principle without principle, but He is also the principle without priority. Listen to these profound words by Gregory. They do not have degrees of being God or degrees of priority over against one another. They are not sundered in will or divided in power. You cannot find there any of the properties inherent in things divisible. In short, the Godhead exists undivided. What's he after? Hierarchy? Priority? These are precluded by the very nature, will, power, and glory the three persons hold in common. This is meant to safeguard you, Christian, and us as a church from all kinds of heresies and missteps in our doctrine of the Trinity. Now, unfortunately, don't take off that student hat for a minute. I'm going to ask you to leave it on just for a minute longer, and then we're going to turn to some application. Unfortunately, some today have compromised the Son's unity with the Father in nature, will, power, and glory. They've tried to have their cake and eat it too. Isn't that always where we get ourselves in trouble? Believing they can affirm the Son's equality to the Father, but still subordinate the Son to the Father. They do not merely have, this is key to understand, they don't merely have in mind the incarnation. They're actually referring to the Trinity in and of itself, in eternity. Believing the Son is defined as a person by His subordination to the Father. 
Equal in essence, but subordinate in role, they say. The Father, in this view, becomes a greater glory, a greater authority, a greater supremacy than the Son. In view of everything we've said, how do we respond to something like this today? Well, let me just give you a few pointers that I hope will help as you are thinking through all of this and reading your Bibles. First, we must be careful. We must be really careful. We don't assume the persons of the Trinity are just like persons in human society. I'm going to keep banging this drum because I think this is where we go wrong most of the time. When we slip into language like roles or relationships, we run the risk of elevating one person over another, as if each person is kind of like us. Each person is, well, independent, their own individual, with their own will, their own center of consciousness, and so on. As if something like power or glory or authority or something else can be exclusive to one person, like the Father, but kept away from the other persons, like the Son and the Spirit. What am I saying to you? I am charging you, let's, not, let's be very careful not to turn the biblical and orthodox trinity into a social paradigm of individual agents that each require their own separate volitional faculties. To do so is to flirt with tritheism. Let's not forget that the persons, as Ronnie so helpfully said last week, the persons are distinguished by one thing alone. We're going to keep returning to this phrase, aren't we? Eternal relations of origin. If we insert anything else, like roles of hierarchy, we compromise the one undivided, simple essence, will, power, and glory that the three have in common. Here's a second pointer. It might sound, and this one, I need you to focus, because this one's a bit more difficult to, to understand, but we can do it. It might sound neat and tidy to say the Son can be equal in essence, but subordinate in role. But friends, that distinction, well, it doesn't really work. Remember, each person, remember this language? Each person is a subsistence of that one undivided divine essence. Yes, we are distinguishing, as we are in this series, between, say, person and essence. But the divine essence is not some fourth thing out there. Rather, to be son is to be generated from the Father's divine nature. Or to use our fancy theological language, the one divine essence has three modes of subsistence, and one of them is the Son's eternal generation. All that to say, you cannot insert something like subordination into the Son without littering the entire divine essence with that same inferiority. Here's a third pointer, and this one has to do, I'm going to ask you to go all the way back to Joseph's sermon. We must pay attention to Scripture's categories rather than our own. 
Joseph carefully distinguished between God and himself and God in relationship to our world. Warning you, don't conflate the two. Don't confuse the creator with the creature. If we do so, we we risk conflation. Well, whenever, and this is something that I think we see a lot of these days, whenever we look at the incarnation and then we just project anything and everything back into the Trinity. If we see the Son submit to the mission the Father gave to him, a very good thing, we have to be careful at that moment. We don't assume, well, he must just then be subordinate to the Father apart from the world. That would be a colossal mistake. A better interpretation of Scripture goes something like this. It pays attention to the different ways that Scripture and Jesus himself refer to what it means to be the Son of God. Sometimes Scripture refers to Jesus in the form of God. Like when Jesus says he is one with the Father in John 10. At other times, Scripture refers to Jesus in the form of a servant. Like when it refers to how he humbled himself to the very point of death. And other times, it refers to the Son being sent from the Father. If we confuse these, for example, if we confuse the form of God with the form of the servant, we can risk humanizing God. Projecting what occurs by virtue of Christ's human nature into the whole Trinity. One last pointer for you. And this one has everything to do with the gospel. We must not miss, we must not miss the point of the incarnation. If Jesus' submission to the Father in the incarnation is something he does anyway, something that just defines him as a son in the Trinity apart from our world, a mere continuation of eternity, then the scandal of the incarnation and its amazing grace is lessened, if not lost. Philippians 2.8, what does it say? The Son being found in human form humbled Himself by becoming becoming obedient to the point of death. Don't miss this. Obedience was not something the Son did prior to the incarnation in the form of God as the eternal Son. No, the Son had to humble Himself first, become incarnate, and suffer by by virtue of His human nature to become obedient in this way. Notice the contrast in a text like Hebrews 5.8. This is stunning. Although, listen to this, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Incarnate, humiliating obedience is scandalous. It's scandalous precisely because it's not something the Son of God does in glory. 
within the imminent life of the Godhead, apart from the world. He didn't obey for His sake, but for yours. Which is why grace is so amazing to begin with. On that note, I want you to consider two closing applications. How does this doctrine of eternal generation apply to you as a Christian? Number one, regeneration. Born again. Unless the Son is born from the Father, from all eternity, we have little confidence we will be born again and enter into the kingdom of this Son. Do you remember Jesus' words in John chapter 5? For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Friends, if this is not true, then the Son cannot give life to you who so desperately need it. That should empower our evangelism, Emmaus. We do not hold out to a world a Savior who hopes and wishes He could somehow turn this world around. We hold out to a world lost in death and darkness, a Savior who can raise the dead to new life. This is why someone like Augustine, one of my favorite church fathers, boldly summoned unbelievers. Is that, is that you? Is that you this morning? Are you an unbeliever? Have you doubted Christ? Listen to what Augustine says. What about you, soul? You were dead. You had lost life. Listen to the Father through the Son. Arise, receive life, in order that the life which you do not have of yourself, you may receive in the one who does have life in himself. If Augustine's words sound strange to you, perhaps a more familiar tune will sound a bit closer to home. A, a song that we sing, I think, every Christmas. Hark! the herald angels sing. The third stanza of Charles Wesley's timeless hymn. You remember what it says? Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Apart from the only begotten Son, begotten from the Father from all eternity, you have no confidence, no assurance that you are reborn. The sons of earth will only receive their second birth if this Prince of Peace is heaven born. Second and last, adoption. Adoption. 
if Jesus is not the eternal, only begotten Son of the Father, then we have no hope nor any right to call God our Father in the first place. Only if He is the Son of the Father by nature can we boldly approach the throne of the Father by grace. The Father, through His Son, has accomplished your redemption. And we, as a result, are the recipients of the Son's grace a thousand times over. Is this not what Paul assumed when he wrote to Christians just like you, the Galatians? In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We, as adopted sons, have life in the eternal Son. And through Him, the Spirit communicates to us all, all of the Father's benevolence to us as recipients of His everlasting grace, as benefactors of His unceasing mercy, we cry to Him, Abba, Father, with every confidence that He will receive us as sons in His Son. And so Paul can say, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, it is only because Jesus is the eternally begotten Son that He is able and qualified to descend into the deep, dark depths of this God-forsaken world. Be born as a babe in a manger. Ascend back to His Father with a host of newborn sons in His wake. Unless He is born from the Father from all eternity, He cannot be sent by the Father to be born as a man in salvation history. Nor can He ensure that you who have trusted in Him as the only begotten Son of God will be adopted as a son yourself. Apart from His eternal sonship, you have no hope that you can be adopted as sons and receive all the benefits of your union with the Son, Christ Jesus Himself. This meal before you is not unrelated to everything we've just said, is it? In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 26, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And in the same way, He also took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
and remember in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim. Isn't that what we are doing here? We are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. What is this meal all about? You come to it every Sunday. Do you understand what you are doing? John Calvin described it this way. He said, it is an outward sign by which the Lord seals on your consciences the promises of His good will toward us in order to sustain the weakness. Do you feel that way this morning? Weak? The weakness of our faith. And we, in turn, attest our piety toward Him in the presence of the Lord and of His angels and before men. Friends, in this meal, we remember the sacrifice of our Lord for the forgiveness of our sins. And yet, we not only remember the past, but we receive assurance here and now in the present of our union with Christ and our ongoing communion with this Son we've been talking about. The risen Christ. And we receive this communion by virtue of the Holy Spirit. As your soul feeds on this meal this morning, on your Savior, the Spirit lifts you into the heavenlies to enjoy communion with Christ. To receive all the benefits of His kingdom. And in this meal, we proclaim Christ until He returns. We do not hope in vain. You may feel that way at times, but we do not hope in vain. By this meal, we have every assurance that one day we will feast at His banqueting table. I trust by what I've just said that if you are not a Christian, if you have not been united with this Son that we have been talking about, and have no present communion with Him. Friend, this meal is not for you. But we want you to know this Christ. Please, come, talk to us. Emmaus, the Holy Trinity has saved you. Come, eat, and be grateful. The following audio is from Emmaus KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.